The world is going digital, whether we like it or not. It is disrupting all kinds of business models, sometimes expanding what is available to us, and sometimes helping businesses specialize to their advantage. The restaurant is no exception. We talked to Carl Orsborn to discuss and explore this phenomenon. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Carl Orsborn, co-author with Meredith Sandlin of a new book about the digital restaurant. It's called Delivering the Digital Restaurant, A Path to Digital Maturity. Carl is a co-founder of Juicer, a pricing company for restaurants. We'll be talking all about the digital restaurant. So welcome, Carl. Thank you, Liz. Great to be here today. So tell me, what is the digital restaurant experience? Yeah, the digital restaurant. What is the digital restaurant? We get this question a lot, Meredith and I, and it really means being wherever your consumers, wherever your guests are. And we've we've written actually two books now, both under the same name. The, fir- the first one, as you said, is called the, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food. But the, the second one that's just come out is called The Path to Digital Maturity. And both books are focused in on digital restaurants and helping restaurant owner operators, restaurant technology companies, quite honestly, anyone in the restaurant industry, understand what is going on with the digitization of our space. Meredith and I, um, used to work for some big, big companies. And as soon as we left, um, Yum Brands in Meredith's case, and my case, uh, AMPM, a C-Store, a thousand unit franchise, we we got into ghost kitchens, which we can explore as well if you have interest uh, there, Liz. But the point behind ghost kitchens, this was all before the pandemic. And the pandemic, of course, turned every restaurant into a ghost kitchen where they didn't have any on-premise business. Everything was being delivered for off-premise consumption. and the, the reality was is that before that, most restaurants were looking at digitization with a big question on their minds. And that was, is this a flash in the pan? Is this something we really have to take seriously? Is this going to be something that will just, you know, go, we'll go, go past this particular phase and then I can just focus back on the on-premise business. And the whole intent of trying to explain the digital restaurant mentality and the ethos behind it is to be able to say, your consumers want this convenience. Your consumers, your guests are experienced this through other verticals, uh, through other e-commerce channels. And the restaurant industry is fast becoming an e-commerce industry as well. And I think obviously the pandemic proved that where every restaurant had to embrace digitization to survive. And even now with the pandemic in our rearview mirror, we're finding that the delivery, the takeout channels still maintain a huge level of sales mix. And so therefore are something to continue to figure out how to optimize. And, And so... The two books, Liz, the first one, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food, that's the why, why to take it seriously. The new book, which is called The Path to Digital Maturity, that's about the how. It's more of a playbook. It's got tips and worksheets in it. It tries to explain to the reader a way of trying to find where they are on this path to digital maturity. Because half the problem these days 
is that the restaurants have deployed 15 to 20 different pieces of technology across their restaurant. And as a result of that, they've now using all of those different pieces of technology, but probably only to 20 to 30% of their true capability. And so what we're trying to do with this new book is help people find their place on that path to digital maturity, optimize themselves and focus in on that before moving on to the next stage. And hopefully over time, people will become and turn their restaurants into you know, digitally optimized restaurants. And so what is the digitally optimized restaurant? What is it that, say, me, what that I would experience as the consumer? Great question. As a consumer, what that would mean is however you choose to engage with a restaurant, you can do through digital interfaces. So it could be this thing, which we spend six six hours a day on, right, the, the smartphones. So you might you want to, and you can you do this today, of course, where you, if you go to like the Chick-fil-A's or the Taco Bell's or the Chipotle's, you know, when you when you can engage with a restaurant and choose the path of engagement, whether it be dine-in, whether it be for takeout, whether it be for drive-through, everything is channeled through one digital interface. And why is that so important? Well, it's important because as a result of that, the restaurant then can understand who you are, your buying preferences, the way in which you choose to buy and when. And from that, they can customize a better experience for you. And so, you know, a very simple way that you might see this happening today, which isn't necessarily customized in the fashion where I think things are heading. But if you were to go to a Taco Bell and you were to go inside one of the restaurants on their kiosks, there's a little button in the top right hand corner that you can slide over and it turns on veggie mode. So if you're a vegetarian, you're only going to see the items that are vegetarian on that menu, which is great. If you think about uh, your Amazon screen, Liz, and my Amazon screen, the home screen, it's very different from each other, right? Everything's going to be based on what you buy, what I buy, what it thinks people of our particular demographic choose to buy. And I think where we're heading towards is a menu that ultimately is personalized to our own buying preferences and our own buying profile. And I think that is something why having all of these different buying channels channeled through one particular interface is going to be so critical. All right, let's say I, I I understand that I go to the restaurant and I can choose um, whether I want to do takeout or if I want to do delivery or if I want to eat in the restaurant. So tell me, how is it now that the restaurant, I mean, is the restaurant going to choose to only do one thing? Um, are we going to have a variety so that some restaurants are going to be one way, some restaurants are going to be another? Are there going to be those that are very old school and decide that they want to deliver a certain experience beyond just pick up the food? Are people going to start delivering across the country as opposed to uh, just locally? Well, I think you're right by asking the question that restaurants do need to decide how deep do they go into this particular channel. Um, and I would, I would advocate for saying it's better to go into it with both feet as opposed to try and just tiptoe into it because if you tiptoe into it you're going to be lost in the noise because there are thousands and thousands of restaurants these days that are available through the marketplaces like DoorDash and Uber Eats and if you just poke a pinky into it you're not really going to stand out and it's not going to be worth your while um, but in terms of the guest experience I think part of that is also along that same line of thinking is, is that you have to be able to realize that delivered food is different from the menu that you have in your standard dine-in on-premise occasion. What do I mean by that? Well, 
think of pizza in this in the first book your roadmap to the future of food we have a whole chapter on pizza and it talks about why pizza is such a delivery optimized cuisine type everything from the food and the way in which it holds through to the packaging and even the way in which uh, the delivery aspect of it works so well and so what we're trying to advocate in that chapter is to say think about how this could work with other cuisine types but that doesn't mean you just take your entire menu that you serve to your customers that are dining in, the same menu that you might deliver. You want to make sure that the items that you can deliver are the are able to be cooked within 10 minutes or less because the delivery companies are going to add 20 minutes for logistics on top of that. And so just put yourself in the mindset of a customer or a guest that is wanting to order from you for delivery. What's going through their mind at that particular moment in time? It's probably not date night. Right. Date night on a Friday or Saturday night is going to be something where they want to go and have that wonderful experience that we all know and love from dining out. But if it's Tuesday night and you've been working late at 6.30 p.m., 7 p.m., and you've got you know, a hungry family at home and you're, on, you're just about to leave the office, maybe in that moment you're thinking, well, you know what, let's get delivery tonight. And you're thinking about convenience. You're willing to pay for that convenience. And you're also thinking about speed. And so speed and convenience, I think, are critical to the delivery occasion. And so therefore, a restaurant that's going into the off-premise channel needs to be willing to embrace the idea of being able to service their food quickly and to be able to ensure that they service a customer base that was that's within, and there's a certain word called isochrome, but within a certain level of distance and time from the base restaurant. That's important because if you can't service that, you're going to give your off-premise guests a poor experience. Now today, the millions of dollars that are put into advertising, DoorDash and Uber Eats and the ways in which customers that are looking for speed and convenience go to those channels. If, if you don't give them that experience, that could be the very first time they discover your restaurant. That could be the very first time they, they see your food, try your food. And if it's not optimized, certainly for speed, but also for quality and of course accuracy, then that guest might have a very negative affiliation to your brand and may then never, ever come in for an on-premise occasion in the future. And that might be a lost opportunity for, for the future. So that's why I say, if you go into this, you've got to do it properly. You've got to treat it seriously as opposed to just treat it as a, you know, just some additional revenue that we can make on the side. So what about pricing? Let's say it's not delivered. So we can eliminate the delivery portion of this because I understand that's an additional cost. But if I go into a restaurant and I order something, that means I'm being served. Uh, there's dishwashing, there's the cost of the place, all of that sort of thing that have to be taken into consideration in pricing. So one of the things that I noticed during the pandemic was that, uh, and certainly I understood that people needed to be able to survive financially. So I, I'm not I'm not complaining about it in that sense, but just looking at it objectively, when you're charged the same amount of money, when you're going there to pick something up that you would pay if you were served that food, do you think that that is something that customers can find objectionable? That was something that I heard everywhere during the pandemic that, you know, I spend $38 for whatever it was, 
when I'm there because it's elaborately served and, you know, maybe it's even made table side or whatever. And now to buy it and go pick it up, it still costs me $38. What is the, is there a difference? It Does that make sense even to think that way as a customer? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I haven't been asked that one before, but I really like that one. Um, I guess one way I think about it is, does the price of your Big Mac, whether you drive in or whether you go and pick it up, change, right? So whether you actually have it delivered, the, the Big Mac is the same price for a pickup or for drive-through or from premise. Um, so there's a different mindset in the consumer when they are choosing to do that. But you're right. They are taking some encumbrance upon themselves to go out of their way to go and collect that food, and yet they're going to still say, pay the same price. I think the challenge is, is that restaurants and you know owner operators, chefs, cooks, they all know that this is a razor thin margin type of environment, especially when it comes to off premise. And so a lot of this, especially when trying to get the mindset appropriate in your mind when you're thinking about these channels, is to say, well, look, if I didn't have a listing on DoorDash, even if it was a DoorDash pickup, occasion right or, or uber eats pickup occasion this weekend even if i didn't have that there i'm still going to be paying for that dishwasher i'm still going to be paying for the rent of my accommodation i'm still going to be paying a lot of the fees that would be there anyway and so part of the challenge that exists so let's just say there's an item on the menu that has a 20 percent profit margin if you were to then associate that same 20 percent profit margin on an item that is purchased through a doordash pickup order well, you're still paying a fee, don't forget, because you have to pay the fee on that percentage on top of the, just by the privilege of being on the DoorDash platform. Mm -hmm. Well, that margin could be as low as 5%. For some people, it might be as low as 0%, which is why then we say, you've got to recognize that that order is incremental. It would have, you're going to still have to pay out for the rent and certainly you have to pay out for the labor that you'd have had anyway. So if you were to remove those two component parts, you're saving a lot of profitability percentage points away from it. So therefore you can actually make more of a case to be able to say, okay, actually I can see that this now is, is a profitable transaction. Most restaurants today are taking a, a percentage element and adding it onto the cost. So it's actually a little worse than what you're suggesting, Liz. It's actually typically 10 to 20% more for an off-premise transaction than what you would have when you're eating in so it's you know it's compounding the problem a little bit further that that's why my company one of the things i also do is i run a company called juicer and we're helping restaurants with dynamic pricing and uh juicerpricing.com goes into the details of this a bit more but most my co-founders have all been in the hospitality industry from a travel and hotel perspective where they've seen pricing uh, be affected as you know through the kayaks and the expeders of this world and what we came to realize when we were seeing this increasing amount of digital orders in the restaurant industry is the importance of being able to say, well, with that comes data. And that means you can then understand the different peaks and troughs of when the restaurant is busy. And then you can therefore deploy different pricing to actually give the customer more choice as to when they wish to purchase. Much like you and I might be able to save a few dollars if we're uh, booking a flight 12 months in advance versus two days in advance or a hotel. And so what we're trying to do with this is then to be able to say, well, what if you were able to give your guests 
a cheaper price for an off-premise transaction or a delivery or pickup order at 3 p.m. or 4 p.m., maybe 5 p.m. in the afternoon, or at least to encourage the customer to order in advance if they want a more value-orientated transaction, but also recognize that at a Friday night at 7 p.m., they might have to pay 50, 50, 60 cents more just to be able to get that item. And so it's basically empowering the customer, but also trying to help the restaurant manage those thin margins we've talked about. So if it's very difficult for a restaurant to balance all of this, and we had kind of talked about ghost kitchens before we started um, recording, what about the situation? I mean, and I'm going back to the pandemic again, when restaurants were closed. So I'm in New Orleans and in New Orleans for a time, restaurants were closed. So people were, um, even people who were chefs without a restaurant were going to commissary kitchens and whatever and renting for a period of time. And you could pre-order the food. So they were never making more than they needed um, unless they decided that they would be able to take last minute orders or whatever, but they would often advertise, okay, if you don't order by this time, you're not going to be able to order from us. So they knew exactly what they needed. They were had a limited menu. They didn't have beyond what they needed in terms of staff because they knew what was what was happening and that they just let people come and pick up often you know putting stuff in the back seat so there was no transaction or anything like that so why if you're just interested as a customer in either delivery or pickup, and you're not looking for the restaurant experience, why wouldn't you go to a place like that um, where, and as a restaurateur, why wouldn't you take that choice? Because it's a lot more controllable. Mm. Yeah, there are some that that um, certainly embrace um, in the new book, we call this thing called the digital native restaurant, which we think is the next restaurant category which has explosive growth kind of potential after fast casual <clears throat> and we we try to talk about this in the sense of if you see the opportunity in this so significant that you can actually optimize both the operation and the profitability and your marketing to cater for customers that do want the convenience of delivery or pickup then that's very much a viable path forwards but I mentioned this new book, The Path to Digital Maturity. It's at the end of this book, right? It's where we talk about it in the last couple of chapters because a lot of restaurants, especially through, you know, the, before the pandemic, but and certainly through it, thought, well, look, all I need to do is I'll be on DoorDash. I won't service any dining guests. And that's great. You know, I don't have to worry about any of the extra incremental labor for the front of house. And I'll just run the restaurant from there. And so many failed us. So many failed. And the reason they failed is that they thought it's um, the customers will just come in through DoorDash, right? They thought the customers will just flow through. The difference now, of course, is that restaurants are on, for all intents and purposes, this huge yellow pages, right? It's, it's like before the pandemic, the yellow pages were super thin. Now it's absolutely huge and like very thick. And so someone who's hungry is looking on DoorDash and they're seeing thousands of different potential options. In reality, they've probably only seen tens because there's a search fatigue as real. But the point is, is that if you don't invest in great photography, 
in great descriptions, in being able to ensure that your food can be optimized and delivered in those 30 minutes we were talking about before. And it's even more pertinently that you don't advertise and appear on some of the carousels or market your, your, uh, your restaurant with certain promotions like free delivery or certain mechanics that can draw people in. You're not going to find those customers to come to you. And so, so many restaurants that chose just to be a ghost kitchen or continue to choose just to be a ghost kitchen struggled because of the top line revenue just didn't come through. And it's very tough because when you hear all of the things that are so in, you know, enticing about a ghost kitchen, you, know, you don't have to worry about the million, $2 million of capital spend to build out a restaurant, come in and spend you know, a few thousand dollars on rent each month. And that, you know, that, and then you just have to have a small team to actually manage. It sounds so enticing, especially for new restaurant owner operators. You know, and I used to be, be part of the, the operating executive team over at Kitchen United, which is one of the, the foremost ghost kitchen companies out there. It, I saw that. I saw a lot of these great entrepreneurs coming in. But if they haven't got the willingness or perhaps the now in terms of capability, which is completely understandable because not many people in restaurants that have been in the industry for many years have a great appreciation today of digital marketing. Those folks are going to struggle because you really do need to think like a digital marketeer to be able to attract customers. And, you know, it's not just about the platforms. It's not just about DoorDash and Uber Eats. It's about being able to have your own first party channel where your customers maybe order through your website and have a very frictionless experience. It's not just about that. It's also about being able to have a social media presence. You know, there's, um, there's two... Uh, two female CEOs I met just last week, Liz. Um, both, both one's an ice cream brand that just exists from Ghost Kitchens called Salt and Straw, and the other one is called Slutty Vegan by a, a lady by the name of Pinky Cole. And they have expanded like crazy over the last three or four years. And they've got a character. They've got a great resonance with certain demographics and certain you know age groups, if you will, and. Their, their brands resonate and hum online, social media, TikTok, YouTube, Snapchat. They've got features of people in the back of house and the way in which they embrace their, the spirit of their food. And so I share that with you because it's not just about presence of the marketplaces. It's also about the voice that you have and the way in which you resonate with where your customers are. And again, remember, six hours a day on this phone thing, right? Gen Z these days, are spending 37% of their time on Netflix, 30% of their time on YouTube. It just came out in a survey last week. It just tells you that it's not about customers walking past the front door of your restaurant anymore. It's about what they're seeing on the digital airwaves, if you will. And it's as a result of that, which is a great chance for your restaurant to be discovered. And so those restaurants that embrace that are then more likely to succeed in a digital only ghost kitchen environment. Yeah, I could definitely see that, that um, it's also a different way that people think about eating so that it's it's not only from the restaurant side where you have to entice the people in, but they also are thinking of eating in a totally different way than the traditional kind of restaurant. Um, I also think that the pandemic made people cook at home to a great extent and um I think that once things started to open up again, restaurants especially began to open up that yes, uh, some people said, oh my God, I can't stand it anymore. I have to start eating out again. Um, but there were some people 
I think, who thought, well, I kind of really got into cooking. And so um, do you have any statistics or anything on how, how that kind of uh, plays out? Not immediately to hand, but I, I think the rise of the meal kit services, the, you know, the mail order meal kits uh, has certainly become something that has uh, become more prevalent. And I think what's been particularly interesting about the growth of that segment has been the way in which they have targeted certain uh, cuisine uh, types or dietary profiles. So there'll be meal kits for paleo, there'll be you know keto meal kits, and there'll be ones that are targeted towards those that are on a tighter budget. And I think that is um, embracing the fact that today's modern consumer has never been more informed about what they put in their body. You know, you just think 20 years ago, there wasn't really the celebrity chef TV culture, was there? There wasn't these celebrity chefs out on the television. They certainly weren't all these huge books around saying about the latest fad diet to really embrace. You know, there were occasional things and you'd, you'd see certain things come about. But today, especially with the likes of YouTube, giving people content and, and different perspectives on what to eat, the, the, way in which, the way in which how you eat is affecting um, your, your beliefs in a way. You know, there are some people that choose to be vegan, not because of cruelty to animals, as a, as a reason, but because of environmental reasons, right? And so cause is also affecting the way in which people eat. And I think because of that, we're seeing a rise of niche brands. Niche brands, yes, for, in the way in which I mentioned in terms of meal kits, but also in terms of virtual brands that exist through, through the ghost kitchens we talked about before. So, you know, I, I think what we'll find is, is that most people are, are certainly still going to be interested in learning about how to cook and um, I think there's still going to be excitement around um, the pleasures of not being a professional cook but certainly just sampling a few things in the, in the kitchen um, but the other reality is is that um, modern trends would tell you that more families now are you know both parents will be working they are time poor more than ever before and so therefore that convenience need especially in the Monday to Friday period is going to be particularly prevalent. And so that's where, again, the delivery and off-premise channels are going to be so critical in being able to service those occasions when someone perhaps just doesn't have the energy or the time to cook. So given that, do you think that there's a certain level of restaurant, as and by level, I'm talking about financial breakdowns of you know the restaurant that charges this much versus the restaurant that charges say at a medium level and then you have the super inexpensive things the mcdonald's kind of thing so do you think that there's a niche there that is that is related not only to time but is also related to the amount of money people are willing to spend on this kind of thing especially if they routinely buy their meals this way as opposed to something I, that's very special or just occasional yeah i i think um i mean there, there, there's some recent stats that have come out that have shown that um most most customers these days are starting to feel the pinch of inflation and as a result are, are changing their habits on how they order i think typically in high inflation environments you'll see more customers 
not obviously eat less, but they'll they'll downgrade. They'll move from a certain category to one of the lower categories in terms of pricing, which is why the QSR models always seem to do well in recessionary environments, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is certainly a case for that. But the on my podcast, the the digital restaurant, we only talked about this um, earlier today, and it's it's kind of interesting to me because in a way, what we're finding is restaurants are seeing that guests are actually purchasing more they're purchasing more but they're purchasing more less often so i think part of that comes back to one of those things you were talking about earlier which is okay so i'll order dinner tonight right so my wife and i will order dinner great but i'll also just order one extra entree so we've got lunch tomorrow covered as well mm-hmm. <laughs> so i think i think that and then that way you're sh- you're you're sharing the burden of the delivery fee across two meal occasions for example so i think there's there's little trends that are happening in terms of customers buying habits but I think what you'll also find is ancillary items like beverages or the um, dessert, the, the dessert, for example. Exactly. Yeah. That type of thing perhaps might not get purchased as often if, if customers are finding, finding it um, tough out there. And I think you'll, um, you'll, you know, fine dining will be fine. I think it will obviously continue to have its higher prices. It will still have its occasions where, where customers will be interested. I think the fact that we're now out of the pandemic and, and we've got more business orientated meals happening. The fact that catering is continuing to kind of make a great comeback. All of these other channels will, will certainly support um, through an inflationary environment. Um, but I do think you're going to find some category switches from some of those medium price right restaurants to some of the lower price ones. So one, one more category of question to me has to do with the difficulty in many places to deliver alcohol um, mm. as a part of the restaurant experience or what's what is provided by a restaurant. In some places, I think that it's more difficult than others because it's a state by state thing here in the US. So that makes it really something you have to decide depending on where your restaurant is. But if you had multiple restaurants in, in multiple states and you'd still have to deal with it. But Restaurants make traditionally a lot of money on alcohol sales. And how do you make up for that? Mm, it's it's a really good point. The difference between alcohol sales for customers purchasing alcohol online between 2019 and 2020 doubled. It was 44% in 2020, 19% in, in 2019. And they, they, they think that more and more customers are very much drawn in to the idea of alcohol being delivered as an ancillary item on top of a, of a purchase. So that's why with, um, you know, the, the DoorDashes and Uber Eats today, you'll, you'll see a lot of um, options, even if the restaurant isn't offering alcohol, that the dasher or the delivery driver will be able to go to a local convenience store and pick up that item of al- alcohol, right? So there's a huge opportunity here for restaurants that play in the certain states where alcohol delivery is, is allowed. And um, I think a lot of, those states that have embraced that idea of it during uh, the pandemic have said, you know what, this is making a lot of sense. It's helping restaurants out. It's obviously bringing in more tax revenues for us. Uh, so this this is actually something that um, is helpful. I think there does need to be, you know, appropriate age verification in place. And so that uh, therefore there does need to be the, the kind of driving license check by the driver, which you know, drivers themselves might not feel particularly excited about because a lot of them just want to leave the food at the door and get onto the next job because they make their money by the amount of deliveries mm-hmm. per hour, as you can imagine. Um, 
but I think it's a, a if you're not if you're in a state that allows alcohol delivery, you should be in this space as well. And you know, think about how fun that could be, Liz, because um, you know, I always love pairing the idea of this to the on-premise experience, and especially when you go to those fine dining restaurants where you have a sommelier uh, recommend a particular uh, bottle to you for uh, whatever you're eating that evening. That still could happen, right? You could you imagine you uh, you have a certain you know linguine dish or something, and you actually said, well, what pairs really well with this is this particular bottle. There's nothing stopping a restaurant being able to create that digital experience as well for their off-premise guests. So I think there are ways and means in which alcohol and its its relationship to food in an off-premise context is only get stronger. And I think over time, more and more states will embrace it. Well, I would love to see in the digital environment actually using FaceTime or Zoom or one of those platforms where you could actually talk to the sommelier or talk to a waiter or whatever when you're trying to make a decision. And it's not all just the flat, I read these things, look at the pictures and make a decision, but still be able to have the conversation that you normally might have with a waiter. And how is this fixed? And what about this? And whatever, because I have seen that a lot of digital choices are much more fixed than they would be in a restaurant environment where you can say, I'm allergic to this. Can you leave that out or whatever? Often in digital ordering, that isn't a possibility. And because a lot of of programs that people are using simply don't provide for that. And I think that it would actually encourage digital ordering to have it could just be this one person and that's all they do, you know, but um, it's still a digital thing. It's uh, it, so like- I, could, I could agree more. I, look, I, there was a, a conference I was at and I was presenting about a, a very popular Asian brand in the UK who the very first thing that popped up on their direct ordering channel said, if you have any allergens or wish to customize any of these dishes at all, uh, please call us. It wasn't, it's like, no, we are not here to service you if you have anything specific. And um, if you, if, if that is you, then again, you are not ready. You're not putting both feet in to the digital waters here. You have to create a menu menu that allows guests to be able to customize their choices. Absolutely about allergens, but also, you know, I don't want red onions on this, right? I I leave the red onions off or add avocado. Those types of things are are really important to today's guests. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Most of the, most of those that are, are enabling that on marketplaces today, like DoorDash and Uber Eats, for sure will be able to do it. But like you say, on first party ordering, which is a critical critical component, we haven't spent a huge amount of time on yet today, but that ability for you to have not only a higher margin when a guest comes to you direct, but also really pertinently, the guest information. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine this, Liz. Imagine, so... Um, and we, we go back to the very first question you asked about omni-channel and, and the, the ways in which if imagine you know who I am as a customer that's come come in a couple of Saturdays ago with my wife and as a result of that I've told you that I'm vegan and she's allergic to peanuts right if I was to give you those two pieces of information what an amazing world would it be if then three weeks later we're both ordering for delivery from your restaurant and that you know that not even to present me with the options or to say, do you know, do you want us to present a menu to you to accommodate the fact that your wife can't have peanuts? Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. So to not even put the onus on the guests to always have to remind them. But I think 
then you could also start creating more of those customized menus. And then it allows the guests to have less concern about the, the kind of allergen side of things, but then more about creating the dish thereafter. But I love your idea about the kind of creativity of being able to speak to someone or to be able to have some kind of engagement. A lot of this these days is very much around just uh, photographs and descriptions. And you're right, you don't really get a great articulation and you know the salesmanship of what a great server will do where they say, well, oh, you want to try this today, this is fresh, or you, know, you should see what the chef's been doing in, in, in the kitchen on this particular item. You know, that level of excitement is why we all love dining out. And like, it, it isn't the same in an off-premise context. It's absolutely not. But is there some opportunity to improve it? Yeah, absolutely. So the next time I speak to the, the right people, I'll, I'll share your idea. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, thanks so much, Carl. This has been a great, great conversation. And I look forward to the next time that I order something online. It's definitely going to be a different experience now that we've had this conversation. Yeah, no, thanks so much, Liz. If uh, folks would like to get a copy of the book, they can, of course, su support third parties and go to Amazon where they can find both delivering the digital restaurant books. But if you'd like to hear more from myself and Meredith, then head to www.thedigital.restaurant. And from there, you'll be able to get a copy of both books at a, a $30 bundle, which we're sending out. And uh, from there, you'll also be able to tune into our podcast, which is The Digital Restaurant, which is something we put out just every couple of weeks. And we talk about the different things that are happening in the world of restaurants, off-premise and technology, and try to support the industry as best we can. But I uh, really appreciate you having us on today. Well, thanks so much. I, I really thought this was a great conversation. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.